Welcome to The Old World Lives, a Warhammer Fantasy Battles podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Old World Lives, on Instagram at The Old World Lives, and you can reach us by email at theoldworldlives at gmail.com. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to episode 11 of The Old World Lives, a Warhammer Fantasy podcast, although we're not actually just Warhammer game-focused today, we're Warhammer world-focused today. And with me tonight I have Niklas. Hello, everyone. And Jimmy. Hello! I'm so thrilled! Do you know why? Yeah, well, explain the Warhammer World part of this episode then. You Mordheim! We're going to yeah. talk about Mordheim. It's our Mordheim special! Woo! Jimmy's episode, definitely. Well, at least oh, yes. it's, it's probably oh, yeah. our first Mordheim special, and it's probably yeah. one of the most important one we have. Oh, yes. Want to tell us why? Because we're going to have a special interview with a special certain someone who wrote the Mordheim rulebook. A certain Thomas Pirinen, Finnish guy who worked at Games Workshop before, and also the guy behind 6th edition. Or an equally skilled voice actor, we're not sure. <laughs> I don't know yet. We're really just yeah. doing an elaborate, elaborate con of Jimmy here. <laughs> yeah. And then we're going to break his dreams. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a, a very interesting interview. Yeah, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I haven't really played a lot of Mordheim, so it's going to be just interesting to hear what he's got to say. Yeah, yeah, it should probably be a good start of our Mordheim season this year. And Mm-mm. just to mention, this is, as you've heard so far, obviously our vampire special that we promised last episode. Yes. No, no one is mentioned time, here. And no time, time, time works strangely in the realms of chaos. Yeah, and part of this country, apparently. Yes. But uh, let's not uh, bog down on this. Uh, let's uh, do it like this instead. Nicholas, what have you done in the hobby lately? Oh, uh, I'm painting halflings like a madman. It's taken a lot of time, but I'm soon done with the first unit. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but it's also very time-consuming painting puppy sleeves uh i thought it was going to be pretty fast because they're so small but it's taking <laughs> forever uh, <laughs> i wonder if they're faster to paint than night goblins <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> holy shit yeah uh, so i'm painting this as a commission for a friend of mine uh, so it's like a, an entire army it's four units of infantry some characters and two hot pots uh, yeah, so I'm really enjoying painting those, and it's nice that uh, I'm having these like in between. Uh, so I finished my kiss of, so now I'm painting these before I start painting dwarves. So in the meantime, I'm just typing for dwarves and just getting some stuff that I'm missing. Uh, I'm reading the dwarf omnibus as well, uh, and yeah, just planning it, planning them out really carefully before heading into them. Uh, other than that, I'm playing a lot of games as well, and the uh, the tournament that I'm going to is soon, very soon. It's next month, yeah? Uh, yeah, March. in March. Uh, so when he posted, like when Joseph posted this, uh, it was like last September or October. I felt like, oh, this is so far away, like why, why isn't there an event right now? But now it's almost here. Time has moved fast, and yeah. I'm very excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. And actually, he did like the first draw, like the first game draw. Uh, so there's like a 500 point Border Patrol game first, and followed by three 1500 point games. 
Nice. And uh, the first 500 point game, I'm going to be playing against uh, Chaos Morals, Slanesh uh, themed. Oh, so that sounds fun. Away. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really uh, looking forward to that. Uh, I played a, a game uh, a while ago, like a couple of weeks ago, uh, against uh, another Joseph. Uh, you may know him from Instagram, Fox Lords Paints. Yeah, uh, doing quite yeah. quite a lot of nice stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's a really nice guy. So I played against his chaos. Uh, we played a fifty hundred point game, and it was a really good game. Uh, and yeah, he he's got a, like a slanish chaos army as well. So uh, I've got experience in those now. Ooh, what kind of experience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you, you don't want too much experience with slanish. Of course, they do. No, you don't. They're, man, they're man, wrong, they're man, wrong kind I, of play. I, pl- I play Emperor Children in 30k and I play Emperor Children in 40k. Of course I do. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the wrong kind of cult. You need to follow <laughs> the proper gods like Cain, not Slanish. Just ruin. That way it's just ruin. Cain is just another word for corn. And there goes Jimmy from this recording. <laughs> help, yeah. help, I'm being oppressed. Yeah, so that's that's what uh, I've been up to. Yeah, and you thought this was a democracy, full <laughs> on fantasy. Yeah. So, Jimmy, Jimmy, how's well, those uh, Kurgans and Step Goblins go- going? They're not going anywhere, <laughs> so to speak, uh, because uh, uh, I I've been talking about doing uh, a small goblin force for my night goblins to join them with the wolf riders and chariots but i just can't build those wolf riders just yet and uh yeah and then to the kurgans i'm actually waiting for the uh, the new releases from the age of sigmar hoping that the uh, what what's it called the the dark oath yada yada are getting some new models because they got a few models in uh, warhammer underworlds the night vault season Yep. And they're amazing looking models. They would do very nicely to use as uh, Kurgans because of their looks and all. Uh, so in the meantime, I'm uh, I'm doing my works, actually. So I got uh, 25 border riders on my hands. I built 10 of them and I'm working on another 15 as we speak here. And uh, I also uh, changed my black orcs from round bases to square bases again yes so i got two units of 20 and uh one unit with two choppers and one unit with two handed choppers so so what's your what's your plan with the the uh boar boys are you making like an entire boar boy army have you got like a well unlike you i have nothing planned i do everything on the swing Uh, actually, uh, yesterday I was uh, going to the orc book and was like, wait, I have a lot of chariots and a lot of boar boys. I can do a nomadic orc boar boy army where boar boys and chariots are core units. Every mm-hmm. model has to be mounted or being a chariot. So are they uh, special, both of them usually? Yeah. So it's going to be, going to be fun. Uh, otherwise I will be like fielding either uh, 15 or 10 boar boys depending on my list i don't have a list planned so we'll see where it goes but uh 
I'm also kind of planning forward so I can play with them in uh, Shadhammer because we're all <laughs> nerd hammers. So I heard at least we don't play scab hammer. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, yeah, if I were, I'm already spending a lot of time painting f- models and like, playing these games. Like, nerd is no longer an insult. No. I know what I am. I don't, I don't mind playing yeah. nerd hammer. Has it ever been, though? Has there ever been? I rolled a nerd crit. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So your your excuse that you're not like continuing on with the project that you said you would because you're doing another project. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm really looking forward to seeing your orcs as well. Are, are you gonna do them snow based? Well? Yes. Yes. I nice. will. Yeah, your big ass war boss has got to lead some kind of works, right? Yeah, uh, he's gonna go with a unit of big guns, and I'm building my big guns out of uh, the Blood Bell orcs. Mm, nice. I'm going to post some pictures eventually. They're just so hard to rank up because their arms are like everywhere. <laughs> like, I, I, I need to make some working unit fillers here, man. You're gonna have to like put them on rocks or something so they're yeah. Or you just like... put a large rock in the middle of the unit and put a, yeah. like a line outside need, of the rock. It's one to think one big something. unit filler. Yeah, I need to think of something. They also need to rank up with my war boss, so it's gonna be tough. But I'm yeah. gonna love my unit. Can't wait to play you and have to wait like 20 minutes for you to <laughs> look under every base at their number and like, oh, this one, this one goes over here. Oh no, that one's in the wrong place. What this one? Oh, shit. it's gonna be be like this. Oh, let's let's try out playing with the clock this t- time. You only have five minutes per turn. <laughs> oh snap! And then you just nudge the table and your unit falls over. <laughs> I think I'm gonna magnetize these bases, man. <laughs> So yeah, uh, well, that's what I'm doing. Works. So Chris, what are you doing? What have you been up to? Um, I finished my half track. Does that count? No, that doesn't count for my progress. But it is on my Instagram it, and it looks really nice. So go check it out. Is, isn't a chariot also technically a half track? No, because it doesn't have a track, un- track unit. It has two wheels, but it doesn't have is, tracks. Isn't a cold one a tr- track? I don't know. No, that's a giant lizard on two legs. I have a bad track of jokes here, man. Good try, good try. (laughs) But it is like the fantasy equivalent of a half track. Almost, almost. I would say that the wagon is the more like Which wagon? One of the wagons, probably more than one in the whole world. Quite common, you know? Oh, fuck, I cut my thumb. (laughs) Super glue it. No. (laughs) Blood for the blood god. Uh, yeah, but I've been uh, since this is recorded the week of our little game in uh, Javle I've been working quite heavily to at least build and base coat my elves because I really messed up my hand early this year and haven't really been able to paint properly but eh, they will be painted before the next game day because that's our rule one they can be taken out once or they have to be painted properly yeah yeah did you mention your chariot last episode or something? Or did you no, that's uh, the chariot has been that has been posted on. Uh, it's been posted on Instagram though, and on our Facebook page, and that is yeah. I've combined trying to combine the aesthetics of the sixth edition metal colon chariot with uh, the new plastic kit and yeah. giving it much more sensible two wheels with giant knives <laughs> on them instead. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, that, that mono wheel 
doesn't make sense to me. No, and not, not that, that that ground clearance doesn't make sense to anyone. It really shouldn't. Uh, oh, it's too much grass. We're stuck in the field. We're trying to run over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your cherry looks really good. I really like yeah. it. That, that's what I, I brought it up now. I need you to talk about it. Yeah. It's a really good chariot. I've also decided to use uh, the crew from the old metal chariot because I really like that nice. crew. Yeah, I have a dilemma. Like, I like chariots and I like dragons, but like, do a chaos army. Yeah, I got to do a chaos army eventually because, because I can't do elves. Chariots are core units. We could do like some kind of orcs and pretend it's a dragon when you put a wyvern on the table. Oh God! Don't <laughs> get me started on wyverns, <laughs> guys. Guys, I've been having the most depressive talk today. Uh, Martin Komet called me, and we were talking about uh, things. He, he wanted to ask my opinion of the plastic uh, executioners. And I was no. like, no, I hate them. That's, that's, that's me. No. But that's me. I hate them. You can buy them if you want to, but I hate them because they are ugly. You uh, shouldn't buy them. Get and, metal uh, ones. And if you yeah, don't get and, the metal uh, ones, he, skip them. he decided on uh, buying the metal ones. Anyhow, we were talking about one thing led to the other. And uh, uh, I was talking about the Viver. It's like, the Viver has two attacks. The Viver sucks. It's because it's it like, doesn't have any arms. Yeah, I know. It's like, no arms oh. and a big ass bear belly. <laughs> it tackles people. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's, it's the worst and, dragon, dragon and, kind. And in 8th edition, it got the mighty three attacks. Ooh, improvements. Yes. But that's what it gets for not being a proper dragon. Yeah, that's yeah. that's Shadowhammer for you. Like, just yeah. take every unit and just make it slightly better. Or or worse, worse, like goblins. Seriously, go, my, my goblin army is about 500 points more expensive in 8th edition. How? Hmm. Well, you could also take a giant wagon with a space laser on it and call it an empire with a truck, whatever it's called. Yeah, true. So this trailing like, out, uh, man. It's my fault. Well, that is what usually happens to my to my hobby progress segment. I I start and people just go everywhere with it. Yeah. God damn it, people suck. <laughs> well, at least uh, there's no ten minute anecdote in this segment yet. Yeah. Well, none of us are usually usually doing the entertainment anecdotes. So, but aside from the Cold One Chariot, I've also been building a lot of spearmen, some crossbowmen, uh, reaper ball throwers, and uh, characters. I've been doing conversion of a nice uh, raging heroes, sorcerers, sorcerer kind of thing for my sorceress. Yeah, I see that one. She's hot. You, yeah, you you changed her staff, right? Yeah, the didn't really fit with uh, the aesthetics I was going for because I was going for more of a druid look, given that they're based on Albion. And uh, it was quite bent and miscast part of it anyway, on the thin staff part of it. So I just felt like, yeah, skip it. Just put a brass rod in, sorted. Nice. And a banner oh. of the Sorceress on Dragon from the 8th edition kit. Speaking of that as well, I had, had this idea for the runesmith that you sent me. Gotta go and collect from the mail. Uh, I was thinking of uh, removing stuff and then uh, getting the the train kit with fences it's got this uh, crow on it so i'm gonna like put the crow on his hand instead i thought we were gonna do do, Raven. do, do like a dark angel analog and put him on a fence Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. make him actually be able to look like a kid in the eye <laughs> yeah so uh the dwarves have this relationship with ravens so I think 
that would be be good for a runesmith. Just tell me your wisdom, crow. If nothing else, it would look cool, and isn't that really what matters as well? This is true. Yeah, we're gonna need those uh, fences as well because I built this uh, hut for Kislev. They need fences. Uh, yeah, I'm really, I really want to make some terrain now as well. Oh right, I've also finished my terrain pieces that I've been working on. Oh yeah, since last time, yeah, you... and they've been posted on Instagram. The monolith soulstone thing and uh, it should run of cane with the blood pool yeah. around it are finished. Bring them to Yavla. No. No? <laughs> oh. I think you may have enough terrain actually. I think I he wants his that. I think he wants his models painted before he uses them. Well the terrain is painted. Yeah the terrain is painted. Yeah. yeah but I think the models. Yeah. The dark elves. We have been talking about maybe having more game days this year and not all of them in Yavla. Yeah. So mainly th- since I really want to see that I really want to see that floaty stone in action, though. Mm-hmm. We'll see it on a table. I think it will look really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will. If nothing else, I will have to take some nice army picks when stuff starts to get painted. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. Something to look forward yeah, actually, to. So I need to build terrain as well. to get some nice army shots. Thematic terrain. You need, like, at least uh, three terrain pieces per army. Oh, God. No, please. Per, per, per unit. <laughs> oh, sweet lord. <laughs> Well, you have like you got green skins though, like five five flavors of green skins. You can just... I'll take yeah. this pile of shit over here and a pile of shit over you there. You just uh, used to go to the laundry basket and take out some socks or something and call it a town. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I do have the uh, that I'm going to that I'm going to build and paint for my night goblins. The loon shrine, whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah. It's so huge. I've also been working on my little pond thing, which is quite nice. It's mm-hmm. about halfway through, starting to pour some water effects in it. Photos will come up when I've hit. Don't, nice. don't drown the skaven. He's got a scuba set on him. Drown. He's a scuba skaven. <laughs> scuba rat. Yeah, gotta make some train for my dwarfs later as well. Question is, should I make dwarf train or should I just make elven should... ruins? Dwarf train would look amazing like a dwarf outpost where they stop briefly before they move on yeah it's cool to make like a, a camp dwarf camp they do have outside buildings as well so you could uh... they don't they don't all live on the ground and there's some really nice artwork in the, the warmer online art book that you can oh yeah find on the internet these days mm, that's true so that's hobby has there been any news really no, uh, none of that made to order stuff has come out no. in quite a while, right? Yeah, the last yeah, thing were the. Last... Uh, yeah, that was the orcs and the goblin shaman. Yeah. I'm still waiting for those things. I bought one of each. Hmm. Well, well, almost well, one of each. Uh, I The things I didn't buy, a uh, guy at work actually bought. Hmm. Because I got a guy at work getting into Warhammer Fantasy. Woo! Nice. The, the, like, what, this has what, never what, happened before. What would you guys wish that they bring out for that thing next? I would love to see them releasing some Dogs of War units. Yeah, that's probably the only thing I would like to see as well from them. Yeah, that's true. And not the Man Flayers because they have already been on it. Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good shot. Uh, but do you think that they would do all the units? Would you do them in waves? No, uh, just some of them. Because, I mean, come on, with the uh, Beastmen, uh, they released barely any units. Uh, same with the Orcs. I mean, it was like the models people barely used. 
Yeah, that's true. There is one more thing we could hope for a revisit to, and that is some of the character models from Mordheim would be a really nice yeah. uh, mate order. <laughs> yeah, that would be... I, I would be all over them. I would buy one of each. Yeah, especially given that it's the yeah, year. Yeah. I mean, I sometime I think I'm going to like collect all models released from Mordheim and just have them on a shelf. Not painted, <laughs> just like models on display. <laughs> because, I, I mean, I this is what I want to collect. I want one of each from the Mordheim models. It will look so really, really cool. Uh, because on the uh, Mordheim group on Facebook, I've seen at least two guys having almost complete collections. And it looks it, it looks majestic. One of them is painting his things, and the other doesn't. He just like, puts them on a nice shelf. Uh, most models are uh, unbuilt, so they're like almost mint, so to say. Uh, Life goals. Yeah. And uh, is this before or after you bought the mansion to store them in? <sighs> I don't know. I or think instead of? I think I need to sell some more organs before I do answer this. So it's instead of the mansion. <laughs> I might sell enough to get a mansion. We're obviously talking countryside Swedish mansions that are really cheap. Yeah. Not yeah. good mansions. That is pretty much sums up our hobby progress, yeah. I think. Should we just mention briefly what we're doing on Saturday? Oh, yeah. I'm going to say, say that this. we're going to have a game day. Uh, the f- four of us, everyone but Nicholas, because he lives in a faraway land with his herpes. I'll be all. And uh, so we're going to have a game day on a Saturday. Do you have anything planned for the games themselves, you who are hosting? Oh, that will be a surprise when you arrive. So we have re- cancelled the game day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, curses! I blame Krell. Well, at least he's bought his ticket so he might show up showing up uh, before you guys yeah that's because i have to take the train and send, then a car ride yeah, so yeah which is I quite blame nice. i blame the really really bad train connections from here to where you live bah! wouldn't be do we wouldn't be able to have no but we're having four players and uh, slightly smaller tables were it yeah 48 by 48 that should be all right. Everyone's going to be in a nice, tight formation. Perfect for fanatics and wild squeaks. Yeah, that's that's why you said you up <laughs> like that, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yes, I think so. Uh, so I say that we're going to have a Border Princess campaign day as well. We're kicking it off a bit later, the first weekend of April. And uh, Andre nice. is coming over, actually. Ooh. As well, Ooh. That we had on the show before that Chris interviewed. Coming over from Poland, visiting London, so might as well come over and play. Uh, just so you know, it depends on how many models I get to sell. If I sell enough during March, I will also attend. But in April? Yes, if I sell enough models, that, that is. Damn, uh, right. Because uh, you, hear, buy you heard it here? Models. Yeah, buy my models. Let me go to England! <laughs> Let me roll some dice, man. I thought you were buying my 30k stuff. Oh, no. (laughs) Sad face. (laughs) Oh, poor you. Poor me. The conflicting emotions inside. Yeah. Uh, The the good thing with, uh, like, uh, you two know, 
I uh, I have these 25 boar boys, and they don't make those anymore. I had to scour the you Swedish. All of them. Yeah, I, I think I bought. Yeah, I think I bought the last five boxes in Sweden, and before I even bought them, I kind of sold half of the things in them. I was like, I'm gonna keep the chariots, and I'm gonna keep the the boar boys. I don't need the boys. I don't need the war bus model. I'm gonna sell them to guys I know. So before I hit the bot- buy button, I was like, "Hey, hey, do you want to buy some boys kind of sheep?" And he was like, "Okay." Don't take that out of, that out of context. No one take that out of context. <laughs> take it out of context. All he wants, especially if you like slanish. <laughs> We're sorry to hear that our interview has been cancelled. <laughs> oh no! I did it again. Yeah, so... Yeah, but uh, do we have anything more to say here, or should we just lead on into the main segment? Yeah, the thing we've all been waiting for. Let's get on with it. Yeah. Well then, we're going to he- head out to some, maybe a reading, or maybe something else, but we'll see you soon in the, the main segment and our interview. An image forms in your mind. The Lord of Change works in mysterious ways, my child. Look to the past and see the future. Watch this space. Or don't. You seem busy with your new tentacle and beak anyway. And welcome to this main segment of uh, this episode. And as we said in the intro, tonight we're talking about Mordheim with our lovely special guest. And well, this is going to be an interview, this uh, part of the episode. And in our next episode, we're going to talk a bit more about how to play the game itself. So... Just sit back and enjoy this interview and uh, take it away, Christopher, with presenting what's happening next. So today we actually have a unique guest, one of the creators of Mordheim, uh, Thomas Pirinan. I'm sorry, did I pronounce that right? I'm always afraid of... Oh, perfect. So welcome. You were actually involved in the creation of Mordheim. Yes, it's the... I wrote about 90% of the rule book, actually. It's the, the of the original rules and the, the a lot of the, the supplements, town crier articles. It's the... the uh, so about myself, I'm Thomas Pirinan. I've been a game designer now for 22 years. It's the... Uh, and I worked at Games Workshop, Microsoft Game Studios, Ubisoft, Capcom, uh, the, the Electronic Arts, you name it, I've been there. But for your podcast audience, probably my stint at the Games Workshop is the most relevant. I did tons of army books there. I did the New Realm of Chaos. I did the Vampire Counts. I wrote the Warhammer 6th edition, I wrote the Warhammer Siege, a lot of the campaign packs, plenty of other army books, the 6th edition Ravening Hordes. But of course, relevant to this episode, I was the, the both the main game designer and the overall creative director, you would call me nowadays, of Mordheim the game. And just first of all, thanks for agreeing to join with us on this game, because I know that both myself, who started out in Mordheim, and a lot of people in this hobby and the podcast are super grateful for the game. Obviously, you wrote Vampire Count, so I might be partial because that's my main army. So basically, we want to talk about just the introduction of Mordheim the game. Where do you get the inception of the idea from? Because it's such an iconic idea, and it's sort of self-contained within the old world as well. Did you get the idea from any particular source or lore? Yeah, it was actually a combination of a couple of things. First of all, uh, Necromunda had already been very successful for 40k, both as a, a game, but also as an introduction to people into Warhammer 40,000. Uh 
So we all knew we wanted to do a Warhammer skirmish game. It's the, the support, the fifth edition, because at that time, Warhammer Fantasy Battle was a very daunting game to start. You needed a huge army, a lot of money down, and we wanted to create a game that would serve as some sort of in into the game. So there was that side. Then this was also year 1999, and at the design studio, me, Rick, and the other game designers, we collected the news about all these people who had gone into hysterics, and they were convinced that the world was going to end. The Mayan color said that year 2000 the world was gonna end and there was y2k panic and all the computers were gonna die or there was gonna be floods and and we just followed this and with disbelief that all sensible people around the world were convinced this was the end and then we thought wouldn't it be funny if we did this in more warhammer world and it was real and but we couldn't just drop a meteorite into the warhammer world as it stood at that point so we went into the year 2000 in the game just like in the real world the world the year 2000 was coming up and we created the storyline of the coming of the comet and when the year hits 2000 in the warhammer world this also came about because i was uh, asked to look into making a warhammer skirmish game but there was a problem all the scenery all those lovely buildings and towers and whatnot they look great on battlefield but you can't play games with them so i thought i have to do something to to create a scenery that you can actually play games with hmm what should i do i'm gonna get a city we're gonna drop a comet on it everything will be ruined so we can move toy soldiers around it so the the it all worked like that it's the other uh, inspirations were like the very ancient fantasy city Lankmar, the city of seven score smokes, the 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 all the big uh, fantasy cities, the the from the um, the the Perdida Street stations, uh, the the city uh, acted as an inspiration. So I really wanted to do Warhammer skirmish game. I wanted to do city skirmish, and I wanted scenery you can play with, and I wanted to bring in the end of the world that was allegedly going around all around me at the time. I think that's actually a really great way because one of the things about Mordheim and Necromunda is that on paper, you could look at them and say, just like with 40k, this is a fantasy war game and this is a science fiction war game. But I've played both old Necromunda and I've played, obviously, Mordheim, which, again, thank you for the gift that keeps on giving. They're very different game-wise. And just saying that you took broken ruins and buildings and have a peek and play in is sort of a simplification because it really works. It ties in so well, jumping from floor to floor, hiding down from crossbows. Every army has its own different ideas. And I think it was really clever just tying in the end of the world. As you might know, Jimmy from this podcast, actually, he's a huge fan of the art. But So that's also something I want to touch on. Did you guys work, did the writers work really close to the art directors and the sort of graphical artists for the work? Because it ties together so well. Oh, this was a probably the closest collaboration along with the sixth edition rulebook I had because me and John Blanche, the overall Uber art director of Games Workshop, who basically created the entire GW art style and of course since blizzard stole it he also created the look of the <laughs> warcraft and starcraft they actually copied directly all his artwork it's still we found out there was a law case very famous one uh and i went to john's house at this point john was already working a lot from his home he only came to studio now and then and he was this was like the the, the, the layer of hieronymus bosch he paints and draws in utter darkness i couldn't see in front of me and he was doing all these incredible paintings and drawings and we talked a lot about what we want to do. And we talk a lot about the influences. If you look at the art there, you can see Drurer, you can see Boschk, 
you can see the middle-aged uh, uh, manuscripts of the monks. So we had a the the we really wanted to look at the the artwork as if somebody in Warhammer world of the talent like Bosch was looking at what was going on and did the paintings. And it is probably the tightest run and most risky art direction of any game I worked on because the style was not typical of the time. At that point, Warhammer and 40k had gone much more into either more humorous or realistic direction. And we went right into the, the, the dark, uh, deep, dark, grim and very, very symbolic style of art. That's you could call it maybe a much more adult, full of hidden meanings and the, the hidden messages and the the symbolism and i think that's part of the reason why the game is so memorable it's the and you can also see that the normally when we'd illustrate rules we would use photographs but this time we got artists to draw all the diagrams and all the hit tables and everything which forced them to really learn the game and its intricacies which meant they were far more into the project than the normally they would be when you are working on a game. Very cool. Wow, that's that's incredible. I had no idea because I remember even as like a hormone-addled fifteen-year-old trying to learn a game, focused on anything except you know drinking and girls back in the day. The the really evocative drawings and like you say, they're very Boschian in nature, particularly his hellscapes and the heraldry you guys did. Like I think I only picked up on maybe half of them, but the way you used animals representatives as well as the walking fish which Jimmy pointed out to me, it made you really remember the rules. Because even today, I can remember the injury chart where you had like this dude, <laughs> the injured guy holding up a placard. And it's uh, it's super evocative. I mean, I, I've got to hand it over to Jimmy here because that man really loves the art as well as the rule set and the texting within it. Yeah, I, I really do. Uh, like, uh, I think you've seen Tumas, uh, my artwork uh, warbands out there. Um, uh, there. I, I just love the artwork. It really have a big place in my heart. Well, it's the the you look at the, the some of the classic Games Workshop uh, products, like the original uh, Realm of Chaos books. Those are the ones also that people remember even now, like thirty five years later. It's the the uh, and I think that the uh, there are a lot of games that are very well produced and have very technically high quality art, but very few that live for a long. time time and i don't think that the the all the gamers that i've met that play tabletop games each one of them remembers mordheim it's the the they both remember what you said about the rules like the the jumping climbing it's the 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 uh knockdown stunned rules that the, the how they tied into the system uh, and they remember the art and i think that's what you need if you want to have a cult classic game it has to be memorable it's the, just like films. It's the some films you see, it's the blockbuster of the year, it's enjoyable, you forget about it, and some remain in the back of your head. It's the and I think the partly down to a lot of very hard effort and partly down to luck, just things came together in Mordheim. But there was certainly method behind the madness. No, I agree because I think everybody here has role played. And one of the sort of distinctions you have to do when you role play is you have to find a good way to have a solid rule set and still have a great immersion and cinematic experience. And in more time, I know we discussed it before in this podcast, which I realize now is not super helpful for you, and I'm sorry, but we all have these cinematic moments that we can all recall in Mordheim because the rule set ties into the game itself so well without becoming sort of too fluffy to deter people who want to play a solid board game, but it also becomes fluffy enough to draw people in who are just interested in the lore. 
like I've mentioned before, I remember once when my vampire tried to jump down two stories and sort of execute a human, but it turns out he had garlic. So due to how we interpreted rules, he sort of failed his leadership. So he tried to jump on a human and basically flipped back for a window and ran away. So it's a super cinematic game and it really ties up. I should have probably asked this from the beginning. I might have been remiss, but your wargaming background, did you play a lot of fantasy war games or scientific war science fiction war games before this or I was uh, I did. I was very heavily a games workshop player when I was a kid. It's the the uh third edition but especially the fourth edition high elf army book really ruled uh, lured me in. I did play a lot of other games. I played Confrontation. It's the I played the the what's the other sci-fi game it escapes me now it's the the uh and the the um and mutant chronicles? Uh, yes mutant chronicles uh, thank you and the i was a a very big uh, pen and uh, pen and paper rpg player like the the i played every game and you can see that in modheim for example i did critical hits not only because i wanted that you could not build an unbreakable hero no matter how powerful character you had if the other guy got lucky and the crit tables were in his favor, it's the any model on Mordheim is in danger. But that was also my homage to Middle Earth role-playing game, Merp and Rollmaster, that had those immense critical charts. Now, obviously, they are impossible for a modern game because nobody is going to read 600 pages of critical charts. But the idea of them, that there was always a chance that if the other guy was lucky, even for the, 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 the one guy was stronger, it could turn with a critical hit. And I think that that came across pretty well. And that shows my background in other games. I think it not only shows the background, but it's also sort of bespeaking of the permanent legacy that I think Mordheim had on every other game. Because like you say, both historically and game-wise, any great ruler or warrior can be laid down low. Anyone can have bad luck. Anyone can slip and break their neck or die eating their dinner. And also, this is something that's carry on both to Warhammer Fantasy role-playing game, of which I have very limited experience, but of some of the later games from Fantasy Flight games as well, where the critical charts is literally four pages long. But as you say, I think the patience that some wargamers have nowadays for memorizing four pages might be a bit shortened. I also think that that interferes with playing the game because if you can't, I mean, the best tabletop games are the ones where you remember all the rules when you're playing. It's the you know what the risks are, you calculate them in your head, you roll the dice, you all you only double check on the chart did you get it right, but most of the time you remember the results. But there is still enough depth there that you can't calculate all the odds. And there is also at that point, since it was the Warhammer Fifth Edition, and the a problem became apparent in our design that we made magic items, spells, and heroes and monsters so strong that the everything else lost their importance. And I was very careful not to repeat that mistake in Mordheim, that even the most powerful vampire in the campaign, yeah, it's super powerful, but you're not 100% safe. And in, in the Warhammer, the main game, you could make practically invulnerable heroes. So the, the that was important part of the design process. Yeah, I remember the, uh, the critical hit charts. I could remember all of it from my top of my head, but the bludgeoning weapons, I could never learn that i know on a six you die but all the other stuff is like nope have to check in the book yeah which is interesting i think it's the it shows who you played with i mean if you play with the sisters of sigmar who are pretty much limited to bludgeoning weapons then the, the, those guys remember all the bludgeoning rules uh most That's of true, the, yeah 
the other warbands tend to prefer either the, the bladed weapons or spear weapons. It's the spear weapon is my favorite critical charge, mainly because of the kebab rule. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. Yes. <laughs> um, and the the uh, and I think it's the, the it molds you as a player in Mordheim. It's the you tend to remember the parts that you used a lot really well. And usually, if you have a gaming group that has different players, they can support each other when they are playing. So it's easier to rather than everybody trying to recover 100% of the rules, you are very good at the, the remembering what is relevant to your warband. Yeah, which is, uh, it's like Jens tied in with, and as you mentioned, I think you not only memorize what's pertinent to your warband, but you also sort of build up a reputation. I know at least we guys did it when we played, like this guy had a really good turn with a sword, which made one of my dregs basically got the, the lads got the talent rule. So after that, I only gave him swords. And it's sort of become the local legend, you know, you built up this character who managed to perceive some sort of act of incredibly daring do. And then out of nowhere, I think he got eaten by a chaos spawn. And it's very evocative. Just a quick question. The Sisters of Sigmar has to be one of the most enduring armies of Warhammer Fantasy that people are still asking to be put into Warhammer Fantasy battles. Where do you come up with that? You mean the, the living and breathing game Warhammer Fantasy battles that people still talk about? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, if you if you look at the sales of the Total War Warhammer, it is clear as day that a, a significant portion, if not majority, of the players, uh, for to them, the old world is still where it's at. I think, my, I don't know anymore, but in my heart of hearts, I guess we will see Warhammer Classic to return at some point, simply because there is the pent-up demand. But yeah, Sisters of Sigmar is an interesting one. Um, and the, the it really came from... A, a meeting. I went to a wargaming club, which, like most of the wargaming clubs, consisted of a great many very hairy men. And they were genuinely, they were very, very nice people. And they asked me that if we'd want to invite some female players, because we had some in, the, in our tournaments, what should we do? And I said, you guys can do stuff like a beginner's close tournaments where it's the, the if they wish, there is only female players. Because imagine yourself, you come into this club with 200 big hairy men and you are the only female. It's, it can be very intimidating. Um, uh, so the, the doing the, the stuff that we did, that the, the, if you want to, you can start with female-only tournaments before you graduate and get to know everybody and you can feel that you are comfortable and you can learn the game at your own pace or the, the, the start having fun. But I also said that I have a, a, a responsibility to put something relatable into the game. Now, the... the um, uh, the obviously, since Warhammer is based on actual war games, which in turn were made to teach military men how to do battles in real life, the models traditionally were all men. Of course, that's what most of the armies were at that point of time. But the the I really wanted to create a uh, a a group that would have females. And I also, if you notice the uh, Mordheim model range, there are far more female characters. We actively encourage that. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at the uh, Mittenheimer Youngblood. That's a oh. lovely, lovely girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the, the and 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 we also said that because uh, I talked this with John Blanche, and he's 
famous for doing the 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 uh, Amazonia Gotikwa painting, which was revolutionary at that time because it proposed it proposed a female warrior that had full armor. And so we said we're gonna do the warrior women, but we're gonna not gonna put them in bikinis. They are gonna be uh, nuns uh, uh, and the priestesses of the Sigmarite order devoted to the martial side of the of the the, the god. It's the and therefore it's the they would have given a vow of chastity to be brides of Sigmar, so they would dress in no nonsense way. They wouldn't be the their main point wouldn't be their physical appearance. So, for example, the big bad mama matriarch model we made on purpose not to be necessarily a a pinup model, but to to represent sort of a very martial kind of a a big big girl. Well, of course, the the there were younger sisters that they, they could be attractive, but they would not dress or act in that way because they had a holy mission. They had a mission to to uh, purge the city. It's to to absolve it in the eyes of Sigmar. And it has really resonated. It's the there was a uh, Danish. I'm sorry to you guys, but there was a Danish group of uh, live action role players who wanted to take part in the Warhammer LARP. They run a huge one in Denmark, but since it was Warhammer, there were no almost no female roles. But then they found the Sisters of Sigmar. It's a very famous group. They made even a documentary out of it, and I'm very proud of that because the I think they created kick-ass models, a very interesting faction in Mordheim. It really, sisters are in some ways the driving force of the story because they're the only surviving warband within the city itself. And it created this the the uh, warband that the the uh, a lot of female gamers have come to me that that was so cool that those were in Mordheim because they were not there just as a the token pinup in bikini but they were like a serious faction they looked cool and they dressed as you'd expect a warrior priestess to dress and the the. Uh, and I think that's why people remember them. And they are still quite unique faction in fantasy games. I mean, something exactly like them, it's the, the that isn't contrived, doesn't exist so much. And of course, part of it is that I made Berta Bestrau from a really, really, really tough special character. Yeah, and I think the way you placed that idea, you made it inclusive and you made it no nonsense, you made it practical and tied into the lore, it's probably one of the best ways of including people into the actual game because how do I put this in a way that doesn't sound cruel or mean-spirited to anyone else? It makes people look at an avatar they can play in a role-playing game or a miniature game like this skirmish game and say, this is something that reminds me of me. And it's not like you said, they can be attractive, but they're not sexualized. They have a good look and they know it, but it's not the main focus of their lives. They live in more time. Why would they not wear full-plate armor? This is literally where chaos put up a carnival and eats people to praise Nurgle. So it really ties in. And like you say, they are one of the central tenets in Mordheim. And we do know that later on they do not fare so well, but they do embody sort of not only the historically tying into the ideal of the fighting for a god that is normally known for his mercy, but also their single-minded dedication. Because the impression I got when I read about the Sisters of Silence is that they collect stone like everyone else, but they see it as a holy mission to cleanse the city and to safeguard it, where pretty much everyone else, even the wizards, are like, oh, yes, super space magic cocaine. I'm going to get me some of this good. And then suddenly Ratman and Sellers. But the Sisters of Sigmar are unique in their self-sacrificing devotion to just protecting the common people. 
And I don't know if they particularly are well loved by the general populace, because I think the general populace are a bit scared of them, but they take it upon themselves to perform this selfish duty. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that they survived the meteor strike. And of course, everybody then doubts that they had to have some diabolical help. Nobody is that lucky when a big meteorite hits them. And this is the, the cause if you look at the witch hunters, they are actually a Templar order of Sigmar too. But the, the they believe that the, the sisters of Sigmar, it's the actually are in league with chaos. It's the, the and even though they both are knights of Sigmar, Sigmar, or the, the, the uh, priests and priestesses, they are the diametrically opposed forces in many ways because the witch hunters hate them with passion. It's believing they are witches and, and they've fallen from grace. It's the, the and, I, and that was a very important story element. It's the, because all, like you said, all the other war bands in uh, Mordheim are pretty much for themselves, but I saved one. It's the, the, with the Sisters of Sigmar. For I did leave a, a nugget of doubt, because you might remember the full-page artwork of the Sisters of Sigmar with a chained demon behind them. So I wanted to put a bit of doubt in people's mind that maybe there is some dark secret there as well. Yeah, I think actually one of the players we have here who has not played as much more time as anyone else is actually Nicholas, who has moved to England. And what we're finding out, as as was pointed out by one of my gracious co-hosts, is that while fantasy is dead, we can see that there is a clear interest. We started this podcast last year, and we have people from around the world telling us like, hey, we're still playing. Uh, there's a group in Japan. There are people in like everywhere. I mean, literally around the world, people are still playing Warhammer Fantasy and more time. I'm just wondering, Nicholas, you interact with a lot of people who play 6th edition in England. Do you sort of feel immediately as someone who isn't seeking out more time? Do you find that there's a lot of active Mordheim in any fantasy group over there as well? or uh, I think that most Mordheim groups now are just like local groups, just a couple of guys spread out. So I haven't really seen any guys casually playing at the club, but I do see it a lot online. And I think that now in this modern age, it's very easy for people to, to share what they're doing. It's a lot easier to find guys to play Mordheim with. So I think this is a, it's a great time to, to start playing it as well. Yeah, I also think that the big part of this that I see a lot of like the, the, the Mordheim group on Facebook, for example, is very large and a great deal of it is is a more older hobbyists and they want to build the Mordheim board they always dreamed. Of course, it's a lot of people tell me that that's the ultimate wargaming scenery because there is no other game that where you can put so much creativity and have a, such a stunning board than have this entire fantasy and then ruin it and they, they make it all grim dark. It's the and I am seeing some amazing stuff there. And I think a lot of the hobby base also is very much it's the into the environment or the collection side. Because while the Mordheim figure range is reasonably large, it is not impossible to own it all if you are a older gamer that has a, a, a some uh, financial means. Yeah, most of the stuff is still out there on uh, like eBay or other trade sites, but for, for a cost. Yeah, yeah. If I knew how expensive the models would have been, because I obviously could get them almost free in unlimited quantities. I I could have retired probably if I'd, if I'd been uh, smart. I couldn't have asked those high prices from the fans, but they, they, it is crazy to see what some of the models go for nowadays. Yeah, that's yeah. also a thing that you were saying about like uh, fulfilling your, your old hobby dreams. I think that's a, a big thing now 
that people are thinking that you can do do now what you always wanted to do. That's kind of what me and Jimmy did when we were playing the siege battle as well. Like now we all have time to to get together and build these things that we always wanted to and play these hey. games that we never had time to before. Hey, sixth edition siege, you you have just play all playing games I wrote. Yeah, and thank you for it. Thanks. It's, yeah, incredibly so. Um, let's see. The the you were also interested in the the my personal uh, favorite war bands. It's the, the oh yeah, uh, the yeah. Mortal. So the we're the, all we're all sitting here holding our own war more more time war bands and just hoping you're gonna say the one we all personally play. Well, the first one is easy. The one I like the most is the one I made first and the one I played the very first Mordheim campaign ever, the Dark Moon campaign that I, I was the GM of, and that was the Witch Hunters. It's the, yes. It's the, a lot of people, and since I was doing very well in the campaign, it's the, the, the infamous 12-man rule comes from the, the my attempt to show to the rest of the studio people that I wasn't just making my own warband stronger than everybody else. So it's actually made it quite interesting warband because you have to make choices and then you go after things like the halfling cookbook and the halfling scout to increase your numbers so the the uh my favorite one is witch hunters because that's where it all started for me and while i think it's a very good war band it's the the i think i i was over um generous with Skaven. I would dearly love to have a 15 minutes in the in with a time machine and just tweak few things there, like limit the slings to only one henchman group. It's the the bring the the uh put some uh, the the limits to the the uh how easy it is to have a really huge warband. Uh make maybe some of their special equipment they say just a tad bit less powerful. I mean Skaven are absolutely beatable. It's the the but they tend to be warband especially if you just give slings to everybody that you can play in a boring way which m- most of the other warbands you can't of course it's a little bit down to what kind of uh campaign you have but you know the type it's the all the skaven have slings hang back it's the and just pelt you with the stones it's the the and that is not a what a game of mordheim should be like that's not unbeatable eventually the other warbands will get tougher but the the uh i think i could have done a little bit more fine-tuning with the skaven but that's always the the problem with uh, with games you never know as you said which game is going to be a hit which game is going to be played 20 years later and what warband is going to be abused for lack of a better word yeah by and large i was pretty happy like a lot of people at the studio were very skeptical they said that even for every uh gang in necromunda was virtually the same it still was tough going to try to get it the, the right it's the i'm talking about the original gangs of course and they said that you try to go out of the gate with every warband being different you're cruising for bruising but I think mainly I managed pretty well because I was reasonably stingy with the lots of extra toys and and the the, the special rules. Yeah, uh, and I think there's still enough flavor to be like all the human warbands are still distinct enough to be different, but also stat-wise they're pretty much the same, and equipment-wise they're pretty much the same. But there's slight nuances in there. Yeah. And I tried to make all the like the mercenary warbands. Well, you're absolutely right. They have the same selection. The ballistic skill difference makes a huge difference in the composition of the Reichlander warband. The uh, Middenheim, with all your hero champions and captain getting extra strengths, plus the wolf priest, plus the pelts, makes a huge difference on the kind of equipment and the play style you have, even for it's the same selection of troops. 
And then you have the Marian burgers where the extra money means that they have the ultimate flexibility in the beginning. So even though those are very small differences on paper, they actually dictate uh, it a lot. And I also think that the, each one of the groups had a really nice, distinct visual, uh, the, the uh, signature that made oh, yeah. them feel very different from each other, even though it was one list. And I think it's sort of a subtle genius in the list that, like you said, on paper, they might look similar. But if you take two of these warbands, and I know this because I had a friend who had just a lot of empires. We tried all the warbands and he tried to play them the same way just to prove a point. Because I think I went on after losing like my fifth dreg to my vampire account and like, oh man, your vamp, your empire dudes are all the same. Why don't you play something different? And I think he went from Middenheim over to another one and he played them completely the same. And he just showed me like, can you see how this is not working out for me at all? And it yeah. became very obvious. They are different. Oh yes, and the the this uh, once they start getting advances because the skill list, the skill lists are wildly different between the human mercenaries. They developed into very different warbands. And um, but those are the kind of things I like to do in game design because I can always write pages of special rules, but you don't remember them. And the more special use you write, you write, the more likely it is that you screw something up and create a gross imbalance that you can't then uh, fix later on. It's the it's much better to try to find a few. But very impactful changes and the ones that use generic systems like the skill system so that the, the, you can create a unique signature without having to just write lots of exceptions. Special rules, to be honest, are something a game designer should use very sparingly because the, the more you have them, the less special they are. I think that's that's a great advice. I Yeah. Uh, as someone... I don't know, our podcast is sort of very much, we lean towards 6th edition. and uh, We do have a friend in Sweden uh, whose firmest adamant belief is that the best edition of Warhammer Fantasy Battles is 5th edition and 4th edition. Anything else just becomes, to him, not like hardcore enough. And then there's a podcast who also does Warhammer Fantasy in Australia who claims that 8th edition is the best edition. And where I'm trying to get with this is that, <laughs> to me, it's super interesting. There are so many people around the world who all say that fancy is still a good game like you said and it's super enticing and fun to play but for more time no one's ever tried to sort of rewrite the core rule set the only thing people have done is work within the parameters given and add new warbands which is enticing and also you worked a lot on the town crier which is just a great way it's pretty much the best parts of the little fan scenes and official newsletters that you used to get for fantasy role-playing games where they had like small article expansions was the town crier something you came up with as soon as you wrote more time or was it a later edition uh, oh it was the the it was included quite early because that was the name of the i printed every day when we played Mordheim in the studio campaign i printed a, a a page called town crier where i gave like what is the special scenario this week what are the the special missions you can take because i had a a story narrative driven campaign i was running at the studio and we just then started the, the producing articles and ideas. And I had a playtest group online is the, of the people outside Games Workshop doing playtesting for me. And they submitted their ideas all the time. So we put one and one together. We took my idea of the newsletter and we filled it with the, both with the, the new rule set. But also, like you might remember, all the, the little color pieces uh, in the back, like the, the, all the obituaries and wanted posters that were part of the original 
campaign we did. So when Mordheim came out, we already had several um, issues of the town crier written. Another sort of thing that everybody knows about Mordheim and that's super enticing is just the concept of Wordstone. Of Wordstone both as a currency as well as using it as a resource. Because game mechanically wise, it's a great idea. It vastly simplifies the idea of what you're fighting for, what you're hunting for, and needing to cut your losses in case you need to find these pieces that you're actually looking for. But also, as you can see very clearly in some of the illustrations, I'm thinking of a picture that Jimmy shared with us very recently, which is a wizard finding Wordstone. And then he takes it and I think it inserts it into his forehead. And you can see him sort of swelling with power and it really buffs him up. And then he starts shriveling and just becoming a dried out husk, but he's still a living mage. Where did you get that idea from? Because you, you touched on and you told us that the world ending was the base idea, but the world does survive, which is also yeah. one of the core tenets in the Renaissance paintings that you guys used for heraldry. And the world survives, yet man is inexorably flawed. Everybody keeps collecting this resource that will doom them. Yes. Where do you come yeah, sorry. Where do you come up with the idea? Yeah, I mean it's there already was an idea. It's the, the called the warp stone. It's the it's basically shards of the the, the the one of the moons of the Warhammer world that is made out of this chaos empowered witch stone. And the meteorite, the comet that hit Mordheim was a shard of that uh, moon, a very big one of course. Um but there was also like when I looked at that time of the Warhammer world, for example, we knew that the for years and years Vlad von Karstein was gathering his strength in Sylvania. It's the, in order to raise this immense army of undead. And I just went that this needs a catalyst. It's the so I thought that maybe we can tie this story into it. So the he sends his vampires into the city to gather these species and they bring enough of them back. That once the vampire wars come around, it's the the uh, he has gathered enough of the pieces that he can power the spell to rival that of Nagash the Black and raise all the dead in the in the empire. Because I never felt that the the, the vampire counts uh, should have been as powerful without some help as Nagash. But the other side of it is you already touched on is the corruption of the soul. Like the, the the symbol of fish that's everywhere in Mordheim is of course an ancient Christian symbol of the soul. That Jesus was called the great fisherman. And even for obviously Warhammer world is not Christian world. It's the 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 the, 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 the meaning is the same. It's the the fish represent the souls of the people who come to Mordheim. And the real danger is not the battles, not the fighting, but it's the corruption of the soul. And ironically, the fact that that uh, the stones you gather and sell to make money are the very thing that corrupts you, both within and without, both your body and your soul. Yeah, and I mean, I really have to pass it over to Jimmy here because that is one of the core tenets he has been espousing about Mordheim from the very beginning. And he's even learned a great way of casting up little fishes for his boards. Yeah, sure have. And uh, I even sent some over to a friend over in Finland, uh, Alexander Wienberg, uh, who is uh, hosting Mordheim 2019 this year. So it's coming up uh, for you listeners out there. It's a private held event in Helsinki by a group of like-minded friends who are eager to revisit that of the damned with a new point of view uh, in this dark and godforsaken city and uh, a lot of talented amazing hobbyists are creating just breathtaking warbands uh, for this and uh, so uh, check out hashtag more 2019 or m19 for amazing models on instagram uh, anyhow, uh, Thomas, uh, a lot of talented people are making amazing and breathtaking warbands for this. 
and uh, they have a lot of new views on uh, how to build and make their projects. Uh, are there any of these particular warbands that really captures your inner visions uh, of those warbands that you created? All the stuff that I've seen for Mordheim uh, 2019 is just out of this world. Like those are some of the most talented painters and sculptures I've ever seen. And it's I think it's very satisfying to see that a lot of them are taking inspiration directly from the artwork of the rulebook. Because remember, when we created the model range for Mordheim, the artwork hadn't been drawn yet, because obviously it takes a long time to produce plastic miniatures or metal miniatures. So apart from very few instances, the art and the models had to be done separately because they could not be produced at the same time because of the overhead of the production of the models. And we did not want to chain the artists to the models. But my favorite stuff I've seen is the, the, are the four riders of Apocalypse. The, 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 when you open the Mordheim rulebook, one of the first inner page, full page pieces of artwork, of which I'm the proud owner of the original painting that John Blanche kindly gave to me when I left Games workshop that has the four riders the the false prophet pestilence war um the the um and and famine and uh somebody whose name escapes me now has made models of each one of those four and recreated the painting in 3d and that to me is like out of this world I think it's uh, Jan Varke, I think. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, the, those models are amazing and they, they really catch the, the, the spirit of the painting, so to say. Yep, yeah, and I want to, I'm bringing the original painting to the event. So I wanna, I'm hoping we can have a photo with the models and the original painting in the same picture. Wow, that I I uh, I can't wait to see pictures of this. Uh, this is gonna look amazing. Uh, speaking of uh, models, uh, the uh, Empire Militia box was that a conscious choice for the human warbands to use those models, or were they designed with Mordheim in mind? They were designed with Mordheim in mind, but there there was an ulterior motive. But at that point, Games Workshop had just bought the the plastic in, uh, injection mold company, unfortunately named Triple K. <laughs> it's the the. Ooh. Uh, Ouch. Uh, they, they, no, they are super nice guys. The guy who named it uh, had no clue. It's the we obviously once we bought it, we named it just the Games Workshop <laughs> Plastic Injection Molds, uh, and we to, in order to stay ahead of the competition, we wanted to do a revolutionary new way of making plastic models, and that was the Mordheim range. Like all the plastic models that are now coming out, the technology and the techniques to create them were founded by Mordheim like the the big revolution in the quality of the plastic models came from the Mordheim, um, the the mercenaries, plastic models and the Skaven. And they were so successful that all the the, uh, product lines that have followed them over the years have all have their roots on the the, the, uh, innovations that were done for the Mordheim plastics. They are very, very important production-wise to the entire history of miniature wargaming. Wow. As someone who played vampires, I just want to say thank you about that because there was exactly two different models for you could get a vampire if you never played. If anyone who's listening to this never played more time as vampires, you get one vampire who's going to do most of your heavy lifting, one or two zombies or skeletons, and then you got which is Dregs, which is basically Igor from the old Hammer movies. And I think there's exactly two sculpts for those. And I loved having Dregs, but you couldn't. <laughs> 
you couldn't use more than two of them because then you really saw how similar they were. So modular box sets was a great boon to us, just making new characters. Yeah, I think the Empire, the, the, it eventually became the Empire Militia box sets, the, where they just took the Mordheim plastics because they were so damn good and they, they just printed a gazillion numbers of them. It's the, the I think that that's probably the most widely used plastic uh, fantasy, the, the uh, miniature of all time. I can't think of anything that could match their usability and popularity. It's still very popular and pretty hard to get hold of these days. Yeah, those things are like hard currency. If there's ever an apocalypse and you wind up in a nerd community, you could probably use them as hard currency to become a, the nerd king of the new world. Yeah, I mean, it's the... the uh... I wish that GW would just continue releasing them, but the, the, obviously here are the problems are that once you've changed your world and since there is only so much physical room in your shops, then you have to make some hard choices. Yeah. Uh, we have a very firm opinion on the old world and we love it. Speaking of hard choices. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, somebody who spends this... years working on the old world, I mean, obviously, I'm hugely biased. I mean, it's the, the, I love that world more than any other fantasy world, with the possible exception of the Middle Earth. Yeah, and all of us here, like, we really, we appreciate not only what was written, but what you created. And we've actually got a couple of questions about the old Mordheim world that was, and we hope yeah. you'll... Yeah, and Jimmy has a super hardcore one, actually. Yeah, uh, when you created the Shadow Lord, did you have uh, Bellacor in mind to be his, well, his identity, or did you have something else in mind? Well, Bellacor was added later, it was retrocon, but my idea always was that the, the, the demon prince that came down with it would be integrally tied to the the, uh, the fate of the Warhammer world. I think that the, the guys who came after me uh, did reasonably good job with it but the idea was with him that he would be a a game-changing uh, character somebody who would really take the the warhammer world's history forward i mean archaean was of course another one of my creations so in some ways two things i created archaean and the the modheim sort of came together and I have to say that the, the if it had to be somebody who destroyed the Warhammer world, at least it was one of my characters. And I'm glad he did, uh, because Ar Archaeon is uh, he, he's my reason to uh, love the, the current, uh, well, not the current, the... Uh, the 6th edition Chaos range because by Lord, they made an amazing interpretation of him in 6th edition. Yeah, that's one badass model. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's the, the... And really, I wanted to write Archaeon as a definitive Chaos Lord. I said that I'm going to write the one just like the Emperor is in 40k. That That's it. Nobody's going to top it. You can't really, like, I created the story about the 6 treasures of Chaos and how that will bring the end of the world. And my, my meaning wasn't to destroy the Warhammer world, because I loved it so much, uh, but was to introduce a real danger and a real feeling that things can go forward and a create a Chaos Lord that really had presence and the, the was something as powerful and evocative as the Emperor is in 40k. And the, I think I got as far, as close as I could have. Uh, also, in uh, the rulebook, uh, there are a lot of Easter eggs. Uh, I know that there's uh, both uh, hidden in artwork, in, uh, I think, texts, and in uh, models. Uh, because we, many of us who have looked into the Mordheim rulebook have seen the Batman zombie. And those of us who have read out into the, uh, the six magic items know that there is a certain spider guy who might be... In, 
been an influence for the magic item? Uh, are there what is your favorite Easter egg that you can reveal to us? Sure. Uh, it's the it's a funny one. It's the it's the young bloods. Now I only learned later on because I'm not a native English speaker. I only le- learned re- later on that young blood is a real word. I did young bloods. I used the name because I used to play uh, BattleTech Mech Warrior a lot. And one of the houses was the house young blood. Uh, it's the and there was the Jason Youngblood was the hero I played in the very first Mech Warrior game I ever played. So the 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 name Youngblood that the 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 mercenaries have it's the is actually not not because I was clever at using English it was a homa, uh, uh, homage to another another game I used to play. So the the that's a Mech Warrior reference. It's the the so that's an obscure uh, Easter egg for you. Nice. Are there any other things you never mentioned in the more time lord a, a little secret that you want to share with us um the the secret wise is it, let me think is it, i don't want to give because there are some things that i was very proud of that the, i will never reveal and the, the that there will always be at least one mystery in the mordheim that nobody ever resolves it's the uh well how would i say the the artwork wise one that comes always to my mind i use this in a lot of pop quizzes i ask them what's in the back cover what's the the, the art in the back cover of mordheim rule book and everybody thinks it's a black but if you look at carefully there is a one feather from the uh, skull bird it's the that's fallen on the, the on the on the back cover of the rule book that was a it's a t- very typical exa- example of a little easter eggs we put in the the um the there is the tarot card that comes with the the box set as part of the the um uh, of the 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 cardboard that nobody we didn't give any gameplay meaning to it so we left that as a mystery for the players to try to rake their head that why the hell is it included what am i missing and that was done on purpose that's a very typical we wanted you to when you even when you read modheim rulebook or go through the components that there's this tiny little tinge of uneasiness that there is some secret here that I'm not getting. Uh, there is a lot of other uh, the the um, pop culture references. I'm a huge fan of the uh, of the, the the Highlander. So the one of the magic items was given by Dwarf King Kurgan to the the, the Count of uh, of of Mordheim, and that is reference to Kurgan from the Highlander. There is tons of stuff like that. Really, really cool. Um, uh, also, uh, as we all know, uh, Mordheim is also on other platforms, uh, PC and console games, and there's even a smartphone game. Uh, if you looked into them, uh, does it feel like they caught the visuals of the city of the damned, so to say? I think the PC game both was good at the, the visuals and caught the, they were true to the lore. Now, with the rules, every single game designer would, of course, do a different job. Would I have done identical job to them? No, of course not. But I do think that they did a very good job and they, the, the, there is a, well, they sold on PC alone over 300,000 copies of it. That is for a small PC game. That's a very high number. And then they had a console release as well and all the DLC. I looked at the, the mobile game. I actually think it's they are trying to find their feet with some of the rules, but I think it's pretty good game. There is a lot of things, again, that I would do differently, but there is a lot of nice things to it. And I think it's a good idea that they picked a bit more cartoony style art-wise because phone screen is not ideal for photorealism. So the, the, That's I true. Think, That's true. Yeah, I don't think there, there could be a game unless it was one-on-one copy and then there is no point doing it on digital that every Mordheim fan would say that this is it. This is 
exactly as I wanted it. Uh, but I think there is a lot of good in those games. And the, the of course, us as hobbyists should look at the fact that those games have bought, brought thousands of new players to the uh, classic game. So the, they are really helped to revitalize it even more. I mean, it was already having the resurgence. It's the, the so the, I see them as positive. It's the, and hey, even if you don't like them, it gives you something to talk about, right? Because the GW isn't right now making new releases for Mordor. Exactly. And like you said, uh, those games have brought a lot of new peoples into the, into the Mordheim uh, board game. And how how does it feel to make to, to see this game still having such a strong community? And what differs more than uh, the, the Mordheim community with other hobby communities out there? Well, I think Games Workshop wise, since I encourage fan engagement from day one, like Town Crier is mainly fan created. It was a product that the fans created. It's the there's always been that strain of the the it's owned by the community just as much as the the makers of the game. Uh, as how it makes feel like the, it's a weird thing to create a cult classic game. It's the, I think it's taken a life of its own a lot, which was the intention from the beginning. I strongly always encourage people to come up with their own scenarios, with their own warbands, with their own settings, with their own additional rules. Uh, but I'm also really proud because you don't... I've done a lot of very popular games. I worked at EA. I mean, the uh, Need for Speed games I designed sold tens of millions of copies. But the, the uh, cult classic is something else it's something that the the uh that you can get into something into people's life that is not just their entertainment it is part of their identity it's the it's part of their informative years the the then there is it's very satisfying it's the it's part of the reason why i do this job because there are a hell of a lot easier ways to earn a living wow uh, also, um, uh, Jens, uh, you and me have been a lot into more time through our years. Oh yeah. Um, uh, ah, well, I, I, I lost my track of thought here. Sorry. Well, it's the, I think what well, it might be the thought you had is that the, there are a lot of games, like if you think about, uh, Dungeons and Dragons or any other game that the, the had impact on you. You don't, I don't necessarily have to play Dungeons and Dragons ever again. And it's still a very big part of my identity, my idea, uh, my id, the, the who I am, because it has such an impact. And I think I've had a lot of people who've come to me that the Mordheim, the game rules, the art, the story, the setting, the, 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 the very craftsmanship quality of the, of the rule book. It's the, it's, it's, it's an artifact rather than just a throwaway book. A lot of people have come to me that it's, it's something that's always stuck to my mind. And I think this is the, I was talking about those informative pieces of your life. I think there is a number of people to whom Mordheim was one of those pieces that even if they never played again, they will remember it through their lives. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, I think all of us guys are pretty much the same age. And I think we got into wargaming. I mean, I did around the release of Mordheim. And I mean, it's definitely formed me. But I think that having not played like old Necromunda, have I, had I gotten into wargaming like five years before or 10 years before that, I'd probably be feeling the same thing about Necromunda. But now it's like Necromunda doesn't do that much for me. But 
about Bordheim. Oh my God, that gives that gets my juices flowing. And this is natural. I mean, we are partially creations of our environment. It's the the uh, the, the the Blade Runner is super important movie to me. But when I showed it to my younger friends, it doesn't have the same resonance because, of course, it's a much slower paced movie than the modern movies are. It's part of my the makeup of my who I am and the, the how how I think and the, the what moves and and the, the has impact on me. Of course, some of the new generation are also fans of it, but I do think it has a lot to do on when we were in our informative years and when we got into gaming or, or, or popular culture. Do you still play uh, any Mordheim games or do you have you left all that stuff behind you? No, no, I, uh, I am invited to quite a few events and tournaments. I still umpire it if people ask me to. It's the, the and I love to pick up a game. What is good about Mordheim is that the, the since even the best player, the, the both because of the, the sum of the random elements, but also because of the very organic nature of the all the scenarios and the rules, it is almost impossible to have an absolute watertight way of playing that works on every time. It's the the and also since the people have come up with new warbands and new scenarios and new settings and new exploration charts and new skills, it's the the game is still very much alive live in that sense that it's impossible to just learn it all. So I enjoy playing it and the, the trying the local uh, house rules or the new warband somebody's made. Uh, it is uh, sporadic. It's the I have family, so I can't devote as much time to gaming as I'd like to. But the, the I pick up a game whenever I'm able to. And uh, touching on that, that was a, a thing that I've noticed now that I've begun to play more Mordheim is that it's actually pretty good for like pickup games. You don't have to, even if it's a campaign game you can still just take 500 gc and write a warband and i'll write my warband and we'll play a few games and then you'll leave and when you come back we can play the same warbands or we can do some other warbands and this is a lot to do because I tried to take away as much bookkeeping and tokens from the game as I could. You look at the experience system. I went with the tick boxes that you don't have to calculate your XP and check how much it is to the next advance. You can see it as soon as you make the ticks. I the the, the knockdown and stunned rules instead of having tokens, it's the it's either face front or or, or you are on your back, and that tells you in what state your warrior is. Uh, I tried to do a lot of rules that would streamline the the getting into the into and out of the games. I mean, obviously, it's twenty years. Yeah, old. and I think that's uh, that shows because I usually play with my cousin and his friends, and my cousin is dyslectic, but Mordheim is the only rule set that he's bothered to learn. So that's uh, that's a high mark for uh, for him at least, or for you. It's uh, he can memorize all the rules. He uh, knows what he's doing. And the other guys who play like once every three years can ask him questions and he can answer from the top of his head. Like, oh, it's uh, it's like this. It's like this. I... Yeah, I think it's also partly to do because when we did it, I asked that let's do every map is a piece of art. Like you remember when you have maps in the scenario section, they are not diagrams. They are not text. They are art drawn by artists. Same thing while all the hit charts have, they are hand-drawn, all those tables. They are not computer-generated and they are not not done with a uh, typesets. They are done by artists by hand, all the shapes you see. So for people who don't have great memories, us humans are actually very visual creatures. And I'm a very visual designer. 
So I tried to make the experience boxes, that's a visual cue. When is the ball, the fat box that gives you an advance? The, the, when you're knocked over or you turn the model over, it's a visual cue. And I think this helps with the, the cause we are actually are very visual driven creatures. I think that's helped with a lot of people to get the rules back as soon as they start playing because they don't have to remember numbers or tables, but rather they have to remember that the, 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 oh, it's the fat box on the XP chart that gives me my next advance. That's uh, very cool. Uh, I was thinking of another question, but I've lost it. Uh... <clears throat> I'm going to flick this one in. Uh, yeah. you, you've been working with numerous of people. Uh, do you stay in touch with many of those who were involved in Mordheim or uh, like meeting up uh, or is it just through social media like Facebook? Um, I sometimes talk to Jervis uh, on Facebook. I talk to uh, John Blanche and he's coming to Finland now, which is awesome. Uh, but Andy Chambers works for me in my company. So the, the uh, I stay in touch with him pretty much daily. It's the, the Gab is now an independent. So we touch base now and then on Facebook. It's the Kalko Pinsky, one of the artists, is a very dear friend of mine, very successful nowadays. I stay in touch. It's the uh, Alessia runs his own company. We talk now and then. Um, it's the, the so yeah, I do. I mean, some people like Andy, I am in a very regular contact, some uh, rather less, but then social media is there. So when I want to talk to those guys, I can. Well, social media is a really good thing to, to have in, the, in, in our kind of society today. So, uh, which also leads me to the next question question uh, i i've seen you interact a lot a lot with uh, well hobbyists on facebook like you you answer rule questions you answer uh, kind of everything people ask uh, how 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 does it feel to like be amongst your well th- those who look up to you so to say uh, like uh, me i i uh, i usually tag you along uh, well not i i tag you to ask questions sometimes on facebook how how does it feel to like interact with uh, every hobbyist out there in the way you do? Well, it's got to do with my own history. I mean, when I started gaming, like with the Dungeons and Dragons, the, the original D&D, not the, even the AD&D, <clears throat> I had so many questions, but I had no way of contacting the designers, Gary Gygax and others, for obvious reasons. It's the This was a time before the internet. Um, and I always said that, man, I wish I could the, the ask questions. And since Mordheim's so close to my heart and at least a number of fans, fans is manageable I mean some of the video games I have have tens of millions of fans I could never even start to answer all their questions so I wanted to put myself out there to think that if I was myself again I would really appreciate it that the, I could uh, interact with the designer and ask questions and clarifications and get that angle from the designer so it's it's got the part to do what I, I'm sure Gary Gygus if he could he would have done the same uh, but he obviously could couldn't, but I think uh, I I'm in a position where I can, as as my no, uh, when, when my normal life allows it, to interact with the people playing the game. And since I would have appreciated that so much myself when I was playing, I thought that I guess people remain same in that I might as well to, to put myself out there and help people along. It's the, if I can, I think that's part of, to me at least, that's part of being a professional game designer. 
So personally, I haven't played Mordheim before, but I'm getting really interested in as we're getting back into playing games in the old world in general. Uh, so I'd just like to ask you, like, do you have any pointers for people who haven't played it before and want to get into it? I think you, if you want to have the best experience, my advice is it's the, the unless you're a newbie to gaming altogether, it's the play it half role-playing game and only half competitive game. You should try to win every battle, but you shouldn't try to it you shouldn't take it as a tournament game unless it's a tournament you're playing when then all the bets are off but if you're playing it with a friends in a campaign do a competitive warband but take risks take the the roles on the 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 risky uh exploration charts it's the try to do the uh try unusual things buy some of the drugs i mean i'm one of the last game designers that was allowed to put drugs into a game that wasn't aimed for adults only it's the i love the fact that i could put those in mordheim um and if you can have a game master in your campaign that gives it a narrative drive of some sort, it's the, there is also the ones that the fans have made. It's the, the uh, available that you could try. But I think that is the best way to play the game if you're not just playing pickup games. It's the I never had time to do a campaign system, full campaign system with goals myself because that those things are really difficult to balance. But the campaigns I've played, the ones where there is an additional narrative layer and an end goal, are the best. And I think that uh, fits all of us very well, because I think all of us at least are heavily into 30k, Horus Heresy, and that is mostly narrative, narratively based. So I think that fits with the, with the Mordheim aesthetic as well, that you don't, of course, try to win every battle, but you don't take all the best units just because you can. You take what fits your Legion, you take what fits your Warband. I mean, if you play Rakelanders, well, then you should have a lot, lot of marksmen and swordsmen and cool gear. But if you play Midnheimers, you've got to take lots of hammers. You don't have to, but you should. And skip the helmets. Yeah, no helmet, just a big yeah. beard. Yeah, and I think that as people who play narrative gaming, one of the things we do that maybe you don't if you just play f- to win is that if you have a loss or an epic struggle where you come out short because inevitably you're going to lose a game of Mordheim or Horus Heresy. You take that loss and you spin it into the tapestry that goes with your army. You sort of make it a part of the games you are playing because you can't win all the time. Invincible heroes are by nature very boring. Also, the the Mordheim's uh, underdog system is extra powerful. It's more powerful even than in uh, Necromunda. So the the when you are go against against odds, you heroically engage more powerful warband. Is the you usually come up with a lot of upside out of it. Yeah, you could just choose to like sacrifice two henchmen and run away and then just cash in on the XP if you're up against a really powerful warband. Mm-hmm. But where's the fun in that? Yeah, you got to try, right? You can you can always get new dregs and skeleton, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Plus, uh, yeah. Yeah, plus I mean the 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 scenarios especially if you play with the extended deck. It's the quite a few of the scenarios are the ones where just having the most powerful warband isn't necessarily going to cut it. It's the the so the, the, it depends also on a bit of the luck of a dice as to what kind of battle it is. I've actually got a question about two of my favorite sort of characters from Mordheim, and that's about the Dramatis Personae for both Joanne the Knife and for, I don't know how to pronounce it. Jeez, I'm going to try. I'm just going over it. Einur. Einur. 
Einar. Yeah, was he inspired? Was Einar inspired by Elric, by Michael Moorcock? No, he was a. When I was playing Warhammer Fantasy roleplay here in Finland, one of my friends, Ismo Peltonen, was playing a high elven swordmaster sent on a mission into the old world, but having to conceal his identity, who was called Einar. So he's a homage into my old role-playing group. I mean, of ah. course, every oh, wow. tale, uh, the, the bitter, silent swordsman, uh, elf-like swordsman in the history of fantasy is inspired by Elric. Obviously, in some level, it's the, it's Elric is part of our heritage, just like every barbarian character is a homage, at least on some level, to Conan. Yeah, and I mean, even Elric draws from inspiration from the Epic of Gilgamesh, and Michael Morcock was very open with saying that Elric is an embodiment of every hero because good, no, chaos and order must always struggle. So I've got ask what about Joanne the knife what's inspired inspiration there because i always loved Joanne the knife no one else did yeah, but yeah Joanne the knife is my homage to the great uh the the uh, german uh playwright and writer bertolt brecht and his three penny opera and its main character mac the knife out of which the extremely oh. famous song mac the knife is made of on a sidewalk sunday morning lies a body oozing life someone sneaking around the corner is that someone mac the knife oh shit that's great Great. So strange I didn't catch that. It's funny, but then again, Mike, uh, I grew up, it's the, I come from a family of writers and artists and, and, and actors. So Mac the Knife was super big. People were singing around me. I saw the Three Penny Opera, which is amazing, amazing play. It's the, everybody should see it. And the character of the Mac the Knife is, is, is very well crafted. Anything Bertolt Brecht did was amazing. Um, so the, the, to me, it was very obvious one to put in. It's the, the, uh and i also think that the uh he sort of represents the the, the is the dramatist persona of the common man of mordheim he is like the ultimate uh the 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 robber and uh, petty thief and murderer i mean is he a murderer or does he do what he must he does have an addiction he needs to fuel Oh yes, it's the that was very. I made that on purpose. I wanted to give him some. Everybody could see from the description that he's addicted to it. So it gives you a human edge, showing that even he is being manipulated. But everybody in Mordheim must have some kind of a flaw. Like even Einar being this invincible swordsman, he he will. He's like Mad Max. He won't stay with any warband more than for one um, the the battle, which speaks to that he has no friends. He cannot have any friends. It's the he is doomed to wonder eternally there is some tragedy in all of them with uh, with the Bertha Bestraufung his description speaks of the the wrongs he did when he was a young woman it's the which is why he went into convent to escape the secular life I didn't specify what it was so everybody can think of themselves what she did in her foolish youth but there is the the a sense of tragedy there and you can't in a table of war game you cannot have the same kind of very long-term character development in the background because then you'd have to write pages and pages of fiction and nobody wants to do that so you try to have to inject that in a very quickly and a subtle way and if you can tie it into the gameplay like with johan the knife being addicted it has a gameplay effect so much the better it's much more memorable yeah, and I mean, it's just, I, I actually, I'm sorry I picked up my copy of More Time as we were talking, because just looking at how much evocative character managed to give these individuals from the Matus Personae, and it's sometimes hard to remember it's only four of them, but it's not a lot. It's like three solid lines, three solid blocks of text, and it breeds life into them, and it ties into the close collaboration you had with artists, because 
it creates a fully fledged character. Like you said, you can project some yourself in there. What mistake did she do? What has she done? Why is Johan such a wanderer? What is Einar looking for? Uh, it's got to do with the Orwell's, George Orwell's Six Rules of Writing, which were on our wall at the, the, the Games Workshop, the design studio. So the, the this was something that Rick Priestley gave me in order to to try to learn uh, the the to not to write too flowery on, or long text, because in a miniature war game, you only have few lines to capture the, 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 the essence of the character. So I'll just read them out for you. This might be interesting to your listeners. So the very famous six rules of writing by George Orwell, one of the most successful writers of all time, is never use metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you are not used to, which you are used to seeing in print. Number two, never use a long word when a short one will do. Number three, if it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Number four, never use the passive when you can use the active. Number five, never use a foreign phrase, scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of everyday English equivalent. And rule number six, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. So those are the very famous six rules of writing by George Orwell. And I, I can't say I've always succeeded following them, but those are the sort of guiding principles for writing uh, fiction and background for a uh, tabletop gaming. Those are really good. The only law I used when I used to be a game master is there's an offer. Do you know who Raymond Chandler is? Yes, yes. Yeah, I only use Chandler's law. And Chandler's law is basically that when in doubt, it's something like when in doubt, have a man rush through a door with a gun pulled on your character. That's just what I did whenever I played role-playing games. So your six rules are a lot better, to be honest. Yeah, so they are used for a slightly different purpose, of course. It's the, the um, Then you can't argue with Orwell's success. I mean, the man who wrote The Animal Farm in 1984, it's the, there isn't much, 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 higher you can go than that yeah, i yeah, think I mean, uh, yeah. we could uh ask you endless of sixth edition questions as well okay, really love you. to have you on just to ask sixth edition questions as well because the what, yeah. your sixth edition podcast is i'll come and play a guest again <laughs> oh please yeah. do so one thing we've sort of been remiss in is Thomas, what are you working on right now? Because a lot of our listeners are probably very curious. Is there some sort of project going on with right now you want to shout out? Not quite uh, that I can shout out. I'm working on video games right now, and I've worked in a, a lot of the Walking Dead games lately. But right now, I'm working on a uh, new project that unfortunately isn't announced yet. So I will sh- shout it out from the rooftops uh, as soon as it's public. Of course. And we don't want to be the person who breaches it. Uh, one of the questions we have, and again, Again, maybe this isn't something you can talk about, but I have to ask, and I'm sorry for being sort I am, if you haven't heard our podcast, I am sort of the asshole of the group. My nickname is Krell because we have two Christophers. Uh, so I've got to ask, with the success of Necromunda being re-released, and I think we can say it's been it's been going pretty well for it, do you think it's time for more time to come up again? Is the box set coming? Uh, I obviously don't work for Games Workshop anymore, so my answer would be, honest answer would be, I don't know. But I can make a educated guess. I think that the the with the as successful as the PC game was and the 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 C the, the GWC the the community uh, I think it, there is a distinct possibility. I also know that for the people like John at Games Workshop, it is to John it's the most important game they made because it is the artistically most ambitious and the most successful. Like it's 
it truly speaks to his ideals as an art director. It is very important to him. So there is a a um, I know there are a lot of Mordheim fans in the fanatic group. It's the so uh, I make an educated guess that its time will come. It's the the uh, they there might be some changes. It's the to the lore even. It's the to at least on some level. Uh, but the the I think there is too much of an opportunity there to miss. It's the uh, and. And nostalgia is a huge driver of sales nowadays. Kill Team is doing really well. Necromunda is doing really well. Uh, Blood Bowl is doing really well. Warhammer Quest is doing really well. Blood Bowl is doing really well. It's the the Space Hulk is doing really well. So there is a hunger for classic games by the gamers. Yeah, and also like you and Jens said that the people who grew up and started playing Mordheim Necromunda, we are all seminally adults now with like families and we do have a different sort of income because back in the day, going in and buying like a box of skeletons was pretty much all the money I would have for a month. But now we have the sort of purchasing capital that nostalgia is going to be a tangible reason to actually develop that market. Yeah, and it's interesting because, as you might have remembered, the, the Mordheim box was full £10 cheaper than any other box game, including Necromunda and others. And that was, we put a ton of effort into that. We wanted it to be affordable. I mean, it's kind of ironic nowadays how expensive the, the models are because they're collectibles. But the original purpose of Mordheim was to have a, a lot of models and a full game and a full terrain in a box at £40. And that was at the time that was also revolutionary. Yeah, I know that in this group and some others, we've actually managed to track down some original Mord, Mordheim characters. Right now, I actually I had to bid on Swedish eBay, but I've got the original Mordheim vampire, the guy holding the cloak, leaping forward in a lunging pose. And sort of being, a, I don't know how to paint them to do justice because these models are so rich, so rich in character. Yeah, I mean, they were the first time the Warhammer sculptures who had to make all the models to stand in the regiments and to take only 20 by 20 millimeters square. They were given first time freedom in fantasy to, to go outside of the uh, the the uh, of the, the 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 limits of the of their base. So it shows in Mordheim figures that's the first time the People like Perry Twins were given full freedom in the Warhammer range to to let them the, the, uh, them to be very expressive. I think, for example, the Marienberger champion with double dueling pistols—that's a classic miniature. Yeah, I have that guy. He's amazing. Oh, how are we doing? It's past ten o'clock here. It's the the uh, what was the the time uh, slot you had for this? Um, actually, we've surpassed the time slot quite a bit. We're just basically super grateful that you're participating. Yeah, feels yeah. like we don't have any more questions. But we don't want to let yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thomas, please. No, no, God, by all means, it's the let's do a sixth edition podcast, but let's do that separately. It gives you guys yeah, some yeah. questions and the chew the fat and the, the I can tell you yeah. why John Stallard, the sales director of Games Workshop, was called a foot and a half Stallard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Inside time, information. Oh, the, no. one, oh, the time when Michael Perry lost his right arm and became a better sculptor with his left arm than he ever was with his left. <laughs> that sounds great. And maybe then I can participate a bit more because I've just been sitting here listening and I've been really interested and sniffling because I've got a really nasty cold at the moment. So. 
Yeah, and Chris is really going to be want to be in on that because he loves sixth edition. He uh, his understanding of lore is just sublime. And I again thank you for making vampire counts separate from Tomb Kings. Hey, it was the it was very controversial at its time, but it was the right decision. I think both armies were stronger with, with it. I mean, you can't have Setra and uh, the the uh, Manfred von Karsten in the same book. They would fight too much. Yeah, and I play <laughs> vampire counts and Dark Eldar. And it's funny because both of those wound up, they were in it originally just units in someone else's codex. I know Jimmy played the Dark Elder a lot too, and they were just a unit in the Craftsworld Elder second edition book. Yeah, I was working on that book helping Gav as well. It's the, the, when the Dark Elders was separate. I, and I guess all of the other parts of the cast, really want to thank you for coming on this episode and uh, i hope we see you in the future i'm sure we will it's the hopefully i don't know if any of you will make it to warhammer uh, sorry warhammer 2019 but if you do come and say hi great thank you so much for coming on it's been yeah a real you. pleasure thanks a lot we've really appreciated it thank you bye bye bye, bye. time have ended and the realm of elves dwarf and man shattered but in our hearts the old world liveth.